Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me this Monday, January 9th. Uh, everything went okay for the family Friday. I know I told you I was taking a personal day. I had to get some stuff accomplished. Everything went very well. We are all now back on track and better than ever, <laughs> or at least as good as we used to be. I'm not sure. Uh, so let's see. Was it? I'm trying to think. Well, Friday night. I don't know if you stayed up for all the fun on C-SPAN. Uh, it finally wrapped up after one in the morning, Saturday morning. <clears throat> the, my favorite part was the second to the last vote for speaker when everybody supposedly was on the same page. And I don't know whether they expected Matt Gates. <clears throat> to vote present or to vote for McCarthy. But the second to the last ballot was clearly a surprise to the Republicans. Kevin McCarthy jumped out of his seat after losing the second to the last ballot and ran over to Matt Gates and uh, started talking to him. And then after a few minutes, turned around and went back to his seat. There was another congressperson who appeared like he was about ready to punch Matt Gates in the face. Mm. So the question was, would they, because Matt Gates had apparently not done what everybody thought he was going to do, would they just adjourn? So the motion to adjourn. Again, we're talking like we're like at midnight now. So the motion to adjourn is being voted on and is clearly going to pass when apparently whatever Matt Gates did, he volunteered to undo. I know. So all of a sudden, um, I can't remember if it was Kevin McCarthy himself or one of his aides runs up to the clerk with what's something they call a red card. They want to get rid of the vote to adjourn. So they do this maneuver. They get rid of the vote to adjourn. They go to one more ballot. And Kevin McCarthy becomes the Speaker of the House by one vote. One vote. Today... Congress is set to vote on the rules under which they will operate. And here's something that I think is really interesting. I'm not sure that I understand the intricacies of these procedures. Clearly, the people voting on these matters must see what the rules are, but they've been keeping everything pretty close to the vest. A lot of the news organizations are kind of saying that we'll find out once they vote. But by all accounts, one of the things Kevin McCarthy agreed to was that going forward, 
one, one, count them, one member of Congress can call for a no-confidence vote. One member of Congress can stand up and call for a no-confidence vote in Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, which means that the business of Congress will come to a screeching halt while Congress votes on whether or not to retain Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. This, in a way, okay, let's, we're going to find a silver lining here, folks. And uh, here's the silver lining. Because one person can do this, and because the Democrats have 212 solid votes, Kevin McCarthy really not only can he not afford to make the Freedom Caucus mad, he can't really afford to alienate the Democrats. You get a handful of Republicans who are mad at Kevin McCarthy and he has ticked off the Democrats. Well, guess what, folks? If the entire Democratic group of 212 votes with five or six really teed off Republicans, Kevin McCarthy's gone. People are predicting that his tenure as speaker will be one of the shortest, if not the shortest, probably in the history of our country. So the silver lining here is that it this whole situation of allowing one person to potentially derail his speakership gives Democrats a much bigger say in things. It means Kevin McCarthy cannot afford to alienate them. And yes, we're waiting to see just how nutty it's going to be. You know, is there going to be a, are we going to start a, are we going to start an investigation into Dr. Fauci? That's what some of them want. We're going to look into Dr. Fauci. What did he know and when did he know it? Well, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden's laptop. Well, that's that's a given. Um, the question is, you know, because they've always said during the previous Congress, Republicans, especially those on the far right, said, wait till we get in power. We're going to impeach Joe Biden. We're going to impeach Kamala Harris. And people said, well, what grounds? We don't know yet. We don't know yet, but we're going to do it. Like it was clearly just a technique that they were going to use for revenge because their fearless leader, Donald Trump, had been impeached with good cause. They didn't really they didn't really care. They didn't really know what they were going to impeach Joe Biden for. But just watch you impeach Trump, well, nah, 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 nah. We're going to impeach Joe Biden. So there. After the vote was finalized and Kevin McCarthy became Speaker of the House at, oh, God, I don't know, really late. It was so late. I was so tired. I um, <clears throat> I had to stay up a little longer because Hakeem Jeffries gave a speech. And uh, Kevin McCarthy gave a speech. 
Kevin McCarthy's speech, I thought, was kind of wishy-washy. It was like he was so careful not to say anything that was going to get him in trouble with anybody that he kind of just said a bunch of platitudes. But Hakeem Jeffries, hmm, hmm, Hakeem Jeffries, he brought the heat. You may have heard this clip by now where he talked about the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. He went through 26 ways they were different, 26 letters of the alphabet, how Democrats were different than Republicans. Listen to this. But I also want to make clear that we will never compromise our principles. House Democrats will always put American values over autocracy, benevolence over bigotry, the Constitution over the cult, democracy over demagogues, economic opportunity over extremism, freedom over fascism, governing over gaslighting, hopefulness over hatred, inclusion over isolation, justice over judicial overreach, knowledge over kangaroo courts, liberty over limitation, maturity over Mar-a-Lago, normalcy over negativity, opportunity over obstruction, people over politics, quality of life issues over QAnon, reason over racism, substance over slander, triumph over tyranny, understanding over ugliness, voting rights over voter suppression, working families over the well-connected, xenial over xenophobia. Yes, we can over you can do That, my friends, is how you give a speech on the floor of the House of Representatives. There was no way Kevin McCarthy was going to equal that kind of oratory and passion. And not surprisingly, he didn't disappoint. He did not equal it. And so we see. As I said before, if there is a silver lining, it is that because Kevin McCarthy has such a slim such a, he was named speaker by one vote, which means that he can't really afford to tick off the Democrats. So he is going to have to work to soften, dampen, rein in the crazier elements of his party. I mean, he's gotten Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan to heal. Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates, well, they might be a lost cause. But if we're very fortunate, the nonsense that we saw from them as we were electing a new speaker, that might just be their five minutes of fame. Oh, you know, they're going to try. They're going to they're going to try to bring the crazy. But um, 
I think that most of the Republicans in Congress would really like to be elected again. Call me crazy, but I think that's something that would really um, sit well with them. And uh, and they know that it takes a majority to win a seat and the majority of voters are not as far right as the Matt Gateses and the Lauren Boberts of the world. I think there might not be as much craziness as we thought there might be. And yes, there's going to be, there are going to be some committees maybe and some investigations started, but I don't think there'll be a big deal. And I don't think that there will be a lot of heat behind them. It might just be a couple of little uh, toys thrown to the far right to give them something to chew on for a while while the grown-ups do their work. Let's see. Hey, a uh, big day in Springfield today. A lot of people getting sworn in. And um, I'll bring you up to speed on uh, the effort to ban assault weapons. We're going to take a break and be back with all that right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Lots going on right here in the state of Illinois in Springfield today. Today was a big swearing-in day. Susana Mendoza, Alexi Giannoulis, newly elected Secretary of State, Alexi Giannoulis, Controller Susana Mendoza, Attorney General Kwame Raul, Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton, and, of course, Governor J.B. Pritzker as and others. All sworn in today to uh, either continue on in their offices or start work in the offices to which they have been newly elected. This is a little bit of what it sounded like when uh, J.B. Pritzker was sworn in today. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, state your name. I, J.B. Pritzker. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the State of Illinois. And the Constitution of the State of Illinois. And that I will faithfully discharge the duties. And I will faithfully discharge the duties. Of the office of governor. Of the office of governor. According to the best of my ability. According to the best of my ability. Congratulations, Governor. Thank you very much. It is uh, a new legislature, new people taking their seats in Springfield. It'll be interesting to see if we have the same kind of dysfunction we've seen in Washington, because as uh, some of our Democratic friends in the state legislature have told us, some of the more moderate Republicans were primaried by far-right candidates and uh, and lost those elections to the far-right candidates. So whether there is more posturing and more obstruction this new legislative session than there was before, we shall see. Veto session um, still going on. Um, and here's where the assault weapons ban stands. It was indeed, you know, Bob Morgan of Deerfield was uh, really pushing this hard. He was... At the 4th of July parade in Highland Park, I know I don't have to say too much more. He was there with his wife and kids. They got away unscathed. But clearly that day, that mass shooting took other lives. The House, the Illinois House, 
has passed a bill. The Illinois Senate, the state Senate, adjourned last night without passing either the House bill or their own bill. Um, They are going to reconvene, according to the Capitol facts, they're going to reconvene this afternoon. But Tashia Kapos in Illinois Playbook is reporting that there are some Democratic senators who are, well, let's just say they're not sure they want to vote for the House version. One of the things they don't like, according to Shia, is that in the House version, people who have assault weapons do not have to give them up, but they just have to register them with the police, give the police the serial numbers, so police know who still has them and where they are, who they belong to. If somebody takes those weapons legally or not, and commits a crime, that kind of information will be instrumental in helping the police investigate. Um, but uh, there's some Democratic senators who say, well, that's like, that's like registering guns. Yes, my dears, that's exactly what it is. Not every gun, not all the guns, not the guns that are used for trap shooting or guns that are used for hunting. The guns that can kill 60 people in six seconds. Yeah, those guns. Yes, you're absolutely right. It is registration. The police need to know. This is one of the problems. You know, if you're, convic- <clears throat> if you're convicted of domestic violence, you lose your right to own a gun. Because there's a strong link between mass shooters and domestic violence. But you know what? If you're already beating people up, you're really not the kind of person that has the temperament to own a gun. But the problem is when the state police who are tasked with this job go to the home of someone like that, someone who has convicted some had been convicted of some kind of crime, that means they lose the right to own a gun. State police don't know how many guns you have. You could have a basement full of guns. State police come to the front door and they say, you know what? You have to give us your guns. Hand them two guns that you have in the hallway and say, that's it. Officers, thank you very much. There is no way for the police to know other than the honor system that they have indeed taken all the guns away from that person. So... Even if I think that all guns should be registered, it only makes sense. If I choose to have a gun in my house, I don't have any problem with the police having the registration numbers. If that gun is stolen from my house and is used in the commission of a crime, you know, and the police can track it to me, they'll say, you know, this gun was used in the commission of a crime. Well, officers... Um, I didn't realize it was stolen, but let me tell you, these are the people who have had access to that room in my house. Or these are the people who would have been in a position to steal it. Already, the police are so far ahead in an investigation like that. 
So, yes, um, when it comes to assault weapons, if we're going to allow people to keep them after we pass this law, I think literally the very least they can do is let the cops know. Oh, by the way, I've got an AR-15. Um, you know, it's um, on the wall in my in my man cave. Whatever. Uh, there's. It looks like J.B. Pritzker is going to lead a real fight in the Senate to get them to pass something. He, um, when he heard that there were some Senate Democrats, particularly that were resisting, he tweeted out on this on this issue: "Enough is enough." He also tweeted out that he wants to see this bill pass now. A bill that has, quote, a real accounting of weapons currently in circulation and a real chance at ceasing the flow of more weapons of war immediately. Illinois House Speaker Chris Welch also said that if the Senate wants to take that provision out, he won't accept that. He will not let his caucus vote for that. So it's either leave it in or the Democratic senators are going to kill the whole thing. He said, I will not accept a watered down version of legislation. Mayor Lori Lightfoot is trying to get the senators to support the bill. We will let you know. Uh, Again, uh, Shia Kapos and Capital Facts reporting that after everybody gets sworn in today, Democratic senators are going to continue to talk about this assault weapons ban and try, try to get it passed. Hopefully they'll get it done. And if I can't tell you for sure by the end of the show today, hopefully I'll be able to tell you tomorrow. We are going to take a break. We have lots of really interesting guests uh, to talk to today from all different aspects of local, state, and national politics. Let's take a break and get off on it, get started on it right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Indivisible is a wonderful organization. There are many indivisible groups throughout the state of Illinois, indivisible rural Illinois, indivisible Chicago, And a lot of uh, suburban towns have their very own indivisibles. I saw an email notice recently that said that one of the issues that indivisible in Illinois was going to be looking at was the issue of our school boards. You know, it was kind of got lost when we were starting to focus on all the elections in the midterms. But before then, it became apparent that if not all MAGAs, there were at least some MAGA groups that were targeting school boards. They were putting on seminars about how to get books banned and how to get um, rules instituted on what teachers can teach and what they can't teach. Well, Indivisible Illinois Chicago Suburbs took a deep dive into our MAGA groups coming for your school board. And one of the people who was um, really instrumental in getting Indivisible to look into that 
and has himself looked into it is Jim McGrath. Jim joins us now uh, to talk about this. Jim, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Joyce, glad to, glad to be on. Thank you. Um, I know that, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that one of the things that you've looked into on this issue is the groups that are funding attacks on school boards and who they are and where their money is coming from. Talk about that if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, it's it's really hard to track down where the money comes from because they are so secretive. Um, I, I mean, I can track down a couple of them. Um, one is Uline, uh, the, the, that foundation. The other is Koch Brothers uh, is funding a lot of these. But a lot of these are... They start out as national groups where a lot of the funding comes from. And then what they do is develop local local groups so they can say it's a grassroots effort. So these groups are, are, are very, like you said, very, they're very hard to, to track down. What, what we try to do, though, is, is follow what they're telling people at, at the school boards. Because my understanding is that because this isn't really this isn't really an, a local effort, it is kind of coming from the outside and maybe they're recruiting local people to represent them. But it isn't like being spontaneously generated at the local level. So one of the giveaways, because I've seen reporters focusing on this, is people making the exact same complaints or using the exact same words or filing the exact same motions across the country. Are you seeing that? Exactly. And that's, that's why I say it, it's, it's, it, it starts with these national groups. And one thing that, that uh, can, can I just ask, uh, can you try Joyce again? Um, we've got, no, we've, we've got her now. Uh, we, we had some trouble okay. um, uh, getting uh, Joyce uh, who to to join Joyce Slavic to join our conversation? Um, but Paul just let me know that she is indeed on the line. Hi, Joyce. Okay. Hi. Hi. Uh, good to be here. Yeah. So 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 what what Joyce and I found? Um, Joyce and I a little bit of background. Um, we started attending school board meetings when we were concerned about armoring of school teachers, and then when the uh, coronavirus kind of broke and they were going to bring kids back to school. We attended school board meetings to say, please just follow the CDC and Illinois Department of Public Health guidelines. And we were literally shouted down at these, at wow. these meetings um, to, the, to the point where my first meeting, they told me they were going to escort me to my car a policeman was going to escort me to my car because they were that concerned. So it, 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 it's a very vocal minority. I'm going to say it's minority. Joyce has had similar problems, um, but they're, they're, uh, what, what we saw when we visiting these different school board meetings, just like you said, we saw the same thing being said. So we started to look into this can't be local. So we started looking into say, well, where's it coming from? And we found this group called Awake Illinois, generated, uh, started in Naperville after the founder lost her school board election. 
she ran on she ran on critical race theory, and uh, we all know critical race theory isn't being taught in K through 12 schools. But uh, one of the things that, that they like to do is create a problem where there isn't a problem, and then say, "Hey, I've got the solution, so you need to join me." And then they pivot to, oh, like anti. Um, uh, Anti-LGBTQ uh, issues, uh, you know, things like that. And so, so what we found is, like I said, they we, we found commonality between these different what people were saying at these different school board meetings. Um, and another thing you can see is um, if you go into your school board, they have the, the most of them will have the agenda online. They'll have the school board meetings online. You can see them live streamed or after the fact. In the agenda, most school boards, you can see FOIA requests, and you will see the exact same FOIA requests across districts. Uh, same wording, mm. same intimidation factors. Um, they'll ask for years and years of data. They'll ask for um, things on sex ed. Um, very exact same wording. It's, um, it's pretty frightening. And it shows that this isn't just a few parents whose kids go to this school who have concerns. This is... This is a political nationwide attack as a way to increase mega power influence on school boards. Wouldn't you agree, guys? Actually, yeah, we, we totally would, John. Right, and and that's the fair. I always say that school board meetings should be the most boring meetings on the planet, and they've gotten very, um, <laughs> they've gotten scary, they've gotten disturbing. Um, they're trying to kill equity programs and, um, you know, attack sex ed programs primarily by um, making people scared of LGBTQ students. And is that is would you say LGBTQ is? is the main focus of these efforts? Because I know I've talked to a lot of librarians, and while there are certain books that are uh, being challenged nationwide that have to do with race, the vast majority of them have to do with LGBTQ characters or issues or coming out or these kinds of things. Why is that, do you think? It's a way to keep the base angry. Like Jim said, they started with masks, and now that sort of has passed on. Then they went after um, race and diversity, and, and that didn't seem to keep people um, engaged enough and angry enough on the right. So that's why they're going after LGBTQ and sex ed programs. It's just to keep the people angry. And how is it working, do you think, from what you've seen? It's working pretty well, honestly. They are showing up en masse. They are getting churches involved. Pastors are showing up. Um, we need people showing up to protect progressive school boards, protect curriculums. If, um, these, and they are, fun, they are actually organizing to get um, school board candidates for the April election. And if they win, they'll, they'll kill diversity programs. They will cancel pride groups. They'll start firing superintendents and kill sex ed programs. It's, it's pretty scary and, and banning books. We need to talk about some of the efforts that the vast majority of us who don't agree with this can things that that regular folks can do. We need to take a break. I'm talking to Jim McGrath and Joyce Slavic. They're with Indivisible Illinois. They've been looking at the efforts coming from outside MAGA efforts to take over local school boards. Um, we'll be back right after this. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking to a couple of our friends from Indivisible, Illinois. They recently presented a program to their membership about what MAGA is trying to do to influence school boards. Um, obviously, we, uh, Joyce Slavic and Jim McGrath, we don't have time uh, to go over the entire presentation that was made. But can you bottom line it for us, what the important points you wanted to share with the other members? John, the, the, one of the things that we've seen across the board with these organizations that are posing as group grassroots, their goal is to dismantle public education get kids into private schools, into for-profit schools. That's the, that seems to be the end goal. And they use all of these dog whistles like LGBTQ, uh, critical race theory, to get people to pull their kids out of public schools because if you stay in public schools, you're going to be indoctrinated. So pull your kids out of public schools, put them in our schools. And then I always say, I'll finish that statement. Put them in our schools so we can indoctrinate them. Uh huh. Exactly. Now, when you say our schools, are you talking about religious schools? Are you talking about charter schools? What is it? Where do they want kids to go other than those those dangerous public schools? <laughs> those dangerous public schools. Yes, a lot of them are uh, the religious schools. Um, I, I think uh, I, I forget the number, but it's it's a high percentage of. Schools, for example, Awake uh, has on their website, I think it's six Christian schools that they are supporting, and and this is the issue that that you know, that we see is this is it, religion is not part of public education because I mean look at all look at the diversity that we have now in in our population. Uh, it's not a Christian population. We I mean we have Muslims, Hindus. Um, you, you name it, and it, it's 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 kind of offensive for them to, in my opinion, to say we need to bring back the Christian beliefs. Well, it's offensive to these people who aren't Christian, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Christian it's, it's nationalism has become a political movement more than a religious movement. Go ahead, go ahead, Joyce. No, absolutely. I was going to say there's an Act Invest in Kids Act, which is basically promoting giving tax breaks to um, for people using charter schools. It is set to sunset, and there's a move for that to be um, basically not sunset. So we would rec- recommend people call the representatives in Illinois and ask that they let that act sunset, invest in kids. You can find out more at ILSPS.org. There's a lot of great work being done in that area because, yeah, it's moneymaker. Um, charter schools don't have the same oversight. Their teachers don't need to be um, credentialed, um, and, and they can have whatever they want in their curriculum. Go ahead. Let me add something just a little bit more on on this Invest in Kids Act. Um, What it does is it allows people to make contributions to what I'm going to call a legal money laundering group, which is the state calls it a uh, scholarship granting organization. There are eight of them in the state. This this act was put in place in 2017 um, as a like a consolation price to, to those who wanted to put in the evidence-based funding for public schools. So 
But what ha- what happens with this Investing Kids Act, for example, if you donate $1,000 to one of these scholarship granting organizations, um, you get a tax credit of 75%. Not a tax deduction, a tax credit. So if you donate $1,000, you've effectively prepaid $750 of your Illinois tax bill. So what this is doing is taking money out of the general fund. Nobody knows about this. Taking money out of the general fund. And what it's, it's the only thing that a taxpayer can say, I want my taxes spent for this reason. So we're, we're taking money out of the general fund. We are not funding, fully funding the evidence-based uh, uh, funding formula. It's way underfunded still. And uh, so, you know, what, what our position is, please don't renew this uh, Investing Kids Act until or unless we can get this evidence-based funding fully, you know, fully funded. So, you know, there, there's, there's all kinds of different avenues that they're taking to dismantle public education, basically, which is their goal. Jim McGrath and Joyce Slavic have been looking into efforts uh, by MAGA to infiltrate and take over local school boards. And one of <clears throat> one of their techniques is to try to make people leery of sending their kids to public school, that they should be sent to religious schools or at least charter schools where groups like this can have a lot more influence over the curriculum. Now, this measure in the state of Illinois that is going to sunset I wasn't aware of this, guys, and I think that this is really important. So tell me again what it does, when it sunsets, and who we should all be contacting to make sure this goes away. Well, you, you can be contacting your, your legislator. So far, there is no, obviously, the, the, the new session hasn't started in Springfield yet, but we anticipate that bills will be introduced to extend the Investing Kids Act beyond 2023, when it is supposed to sunset. And the other thing that they want to do, two other things, they want to make it permanent, and they want to increase the 75% tax credit to 100%. So uh, what we can do, Joyce has set up a, a nice Facebook page and a, an email address that uh, – if people want to be informed, we're glad to do this. Jonah would be glad to come back when there's a bill proposed and, and tell your listeners about it. But what we, what we try to do is follow the legislation and keep people informed. We have talked to, I don't know how many people who know nothing. Nobody knows anything about this Investing Kids Act. And when, when we talk to people, they're shocked. It, it's, it's, it's basically a voucher system which our, our Illinois Constitution does not allow. So that's why they set up this money laundering scheme with the scholarship granting organizations to, uh, to get around the Illinois Constitution. Unbelievable. You know, I really appreciate when people like you take the time to dig into some of this. I try to do the best I can, but sometimes I feel like there's just a tsunami of information coming at me, and I don't always... Um, learn and share everything that I would like to. So we'll keep an eye on this. You guys are going to reach out to me when there is an update on this. But un- until then, Jim and Joyce, 
what can people do right now? So right now, there's um, elections are going to be happening in April on school boards. People need to be showing up to their school boards, protecting their um, diversity and equity programs, protecting their libraries and protecting their teachers, which protects their kids. They need to be supporting progressive candidates who have stepped up to run, and they need to figure out any way they can to help those people, whether that's fundraising, canvassing, phone banking. They need to be doing that. They need to be showing up to the school boards, writing letters to the editor, highlighting Um, these MAGA or Awake Illinois candidates who are getting training from national level, and they need to make people aware of who's running at these school boards. So showing up at your school board meeting, but you're talking to people who are parents, right? I mean, my kids are now launched. They're all in their 20s. So... Would you suggest that this is something appropriate for me or should it only be the people who have skin in the game, who have kids in the schools? No, we all we all belong to these communities. We pay taxes and we have we belong to these communities, even if we're not property owners, whether we have kids or not. A lot of community members who show up to the school board meetings and um, speak during public comments are, do not have kids in the in the um in the district, which is okay. They're community members. So we need to be paying attention to who's speaking at those and who's running for um, public office. They are not all parents. This is not just a parent issue. It's a community issue. And if you go to, let's, well, you know, February 28th, um, and it isn't just a, ra- a race for mayor in the city of Chicago, there's going to be a lot of older seats that people are going to be voting on. If they go to a candidate forum for, um, for aldermen, what kinds of question or whether it's a, a candidate forum for a state rep or a state senator, what kinds of questions should people be asking these people uh, to find out, you know, if they're informed on this issue and where they stand? So one question would be how they stand on the Invest for Kids Act. How do mm-hmm. they stand on book bans? How do they stand on um, diversity, equity and inclusion programs in school? How will they protect public schools? Yeah, and John, the, 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 your, your question about should if you don't have skin in the game, you don't have a kid in the school. Um, the, the, the real issue is um, it gets down to a well-educated public is critical to our democracy. That is critical. And so what they're trying to do is, is have a sanitized education for kids in public schools or educate them the way they want to educate them in these private schools. And and so, you know, basically the way we look at it is other than dismantling the public education, they're trying to dismantle our democracy by attacking public education, which is, like I said, critical to our ongoing democracy. Hmm. You know, I think of Illinois as this blue state that doesn't have to worry about this kind of stuff. But I would be wrong on that, wouldn't I, guys? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. They're starting from the ground level. School boards and library boards are the ground level where they are making these kind of changes and that will start that will bubble up. And and what we what we learned is um their goal is like we talked about to get people elected to the school board, which is a springboard to a state legislator position or higher. They get their name out there, they get some recognition. And they get they get their their group built up behind them so they can move on to higher, you know, higher positions. So it, it's 
And this is a long, long, this is a strategy that they've been working on for quite some time. This didn't just happen just a couple of years ago. And, and most Americans do not support book bans. They just do not. And no, um, absolutely. Going after book bans, it, and school boards are voting on that. The role of a school board member is really is not to micromanage the curriculum. It's that's not the role of a school board member, and that's what these groups are asking them to do. School boards are being backed into a corner with that and sex ed, and they're being forced to make these these kind of decisions. And what can can we do to support the the people who are there? Because I know that, you know, I mean, especially during the height of the Trump years, we saw school board members who were being threatened with violence and and and, and their kids were being threatened. I mean, it was so ugly. Hopefully we won't get that bad again. Do you think it's still happening? It is still oh. happening. So, so the more we show up. Yeah. The more we show up and support them, we vocally support them during public comments. We send them emails telling them we support them. We write letters to the editor because, like you say, Joe, not everybody's going to school boards and is recognizing what's happening. Letters to the editor are a place where it's a broader, you know, area. Mm -hmm. People are going to hear about it. We need to talk to our neighbors and we need to let everybody know, like through this program, that this is happening and it's a danger to our communities. When when I talk to people in, in my community and tell them what's going on at the school board, they are in total disbelief. They go, well, that can't be happening here. And I have to go, it is happening here. Yeah. I'm afraid I might have been one of those people. Um, and, you know, I just don't understand I why a family like the Ulines um, who – supposedly live in Lake Forest, you know, they've made all this money in their little cardboard box business, and why they seem, and other Christian nationalists, seem to have completely forgotten about separation of church and state, seem to have completely forgotten that we are supposed to be an accepting country, not a country that says this is how you have to think and this is how you have to read. It's... um. It's still a fight. It's not over. Donald Trump may no longer be president, but this fight is still not over, is it, guys? No, he, he certainly did the flying. Yeah. Yeah. He certainly did. Um, thank you so very much, Jim McGrath, Joyce Slavic. You're doing such great work with uh, Indivisible Illinois. Please, please reach out anytime. There's any development here, any movement here, good or bad. Um, I really need you guys to help me stay on top of this, okay? John, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to say the Illinois Illinois Families for Public Schools is doing really great work in this area as well. Great. Illinois Families for Public Schools. Excellent. Thank you both so very much. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Speaking of elections, and I was, uh, February 28th, we are going to, if you live in the city of Chicago, you're going to be voting for a mayor. We are going to be doing a special forum where um, a number of the candidates who are running to be the next mayor of Chicago 
will join us, and we are going to broadcast this live. It is going to be Thursday, January 26th. We are going to start it at noon, and um, it is what we're going to do is because there are so many candidates, assuming that we have by that time so many candidates, we're going to break it up into two panels. We're going to do uh, one panel, take a break, do a second panel. So we'll be on the air for at least an hour and a half, maybe two hours with this, starting at noon, February 26th. If you live in the city of Chicago, you're going to be voting on other measures. If you are in the Fifth Ward, you are going to be electing a new alder person, Um Leslie Hairston had that seat for a very long time. She is not running again for a number of reasons. And there's a pretty long list, pretty long list for an aldermanic role of people who would like to replace her. One of those people is Wallace Good. Uh, he is running to be the next alder person from the Fifth Ward in the city of Chicago. And he joins us now to talk about himself and his campaign. Wallace, thank you for being here. Joan, thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm excited that you guys have reached down to the fifth ward to see <laughs> what's going on on Chicago's south side and on the lakefront. Well, you know, we when do try to, sometimes we get distracted by uh, some of the bigger goings-on and things in Springfield, but these these seats, these aldermanic seats, are really, really important, and, it, you know, we're going to try in the coming weeks to focus more on a lot of these races. Tell the audience well, about yourself, if you don't mind. Well, and two things. One, when you think about this race, it's particularly exciting with so many new aldermen joining. Think about 15 of us minimally, maybe 16, are going to influence city policies and politics very, very soon. So that's very exciting to me. I chose to get into the race, and I announced, and I thought it was going to be David and Goliath, me running against someone who had been there 24 years, and then she stepped down. So there are a bunch of Davids right now, and that's <laughs> a very exciting opportunity. <laughs> you know, I love it. I really am. I've been a kid who grew up in the Fifth Ward. I grew up in Woodlawn, was educated by Catholic nuns, tutored by University of Chicago students who although I don't know if they helped improve my grades, certainly brought us on campus, took us to Northwestern, Loyola, and DePaul. And at a very early age, I was like, I can't wait to go to college. That was a real influence there. And then I learned leadership, teamwork, and discipline at Mount Carmel High School. So the good part is that I grew up. My family has lived in this ward for 62 years. I left the ward to learn how it's done around the world. I've been in the Peace Corps twice. I've been a dean at four different universities, most recently at the University of Chicago. I've worked for the city from assistant commissioner to executive director of Chicago's Empowerment Zone to special assistant to the mayor. So I simply say I speak City Hall, I speak University of Chicago, I speak Southside, and I have a global perspective. What I want to do is help this community connect 24 years creates a vacuum in one sense. Leslie was great in terms of what she was doing, and she developed her group of supporters and great supporters. But a lot of new blood has come along. A lot of old politics of disagreement is there. I bring a fresh perspective. 
three simple things. I'm a bridge builder, I'm a conductor, and I want to write our story, not history. Tell me, I didn't realize that you had spent time in the Peace Corps. What drew you to that? I wish I could say that it was an altruistic opportunity. A recruiter from Peace Corps was on my campus when I was the dean at Earlham, and he was from Chicago, and I suggested he and I have dinner that night since he was from Chicago. And somewhere between dessert and our second bottle of wine, he's like, it would be great if I could get a dean to sign up for the Peace Corps. Somewhere between there. It was the best decision I've ever made. I've really? Overseas. I've traveled around the world. Literally, I'm a kid from Woodlawn who has circumnavigated the globe. I've been to 40 different countries, all because of that second bottle of wine and the best experience <laughs> I think I've ever had. And I've done it twice. I came home, and as much of my great experience, I did not like being single in the first tour. And I found a partner, and she and I served two and a half years in the Solomon Islands. Wow. That's that's amazing. So you have been interested in public service for a very long time. Um, it's so funny you said that, Joan. It wasn't until I decided to run for office that someone says, you've been doing this your whole life. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, no. I was working at a university. And no, no. I was in the Peace Corps. No, no, no. I worked for the city. And they're like, Wallace, what do you call that? <laughs> Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I guess I've been in public service my entire life. And I'm really excited that all of those years of experience working for governors in other countries, working for chiefs, working for the mayor, all of those experiences taught me how to be an effective team player. Well, let's uh, let's jump in and start talking about some of the issues from various articles that have been written about you and various websites, I know that you're really interesting, really interested in putting a, a stop to the illegal guns coming in. Talk about that. Well, my new phrase is that we need to assault assault weapons. In other words, we need to go Elliot Ness on them, the gun smugglers. I don't understand why we can't do something different with the guns that are being smuggled into this country, into this neighborhood, into this community. Um, I believe that we could do something. Let me not even pretend that I have a panacea and a plan, but I've lived long enough to know that there are experts out there that when you bring them together in a think tank, come up with incredibly talented ways of solving problems. I just think we lack the will, and my intention will be to make that a priority for us. So, I want to go Elliot Ness on gun smugglers <laughs> and want us to assault assault um, I don't think you're going to find uh, too many people in opposition uh, to that. And hopefully, you know, hopefully Springfield, before they wrap up this lame duck session, will be helping the whole state of Illinois um, out on that particular issue. So let's move on to other things. Um, I know that you... you you have something that you call the alternative to the streets. Talk about that. Yes. I have many friends who tell me they're doing great programs with young people. A very good friend tied to Mount Carmel High School talks about training young men, young African-American men in golf. And those young men are getting scholarships to play golf in college all over the United States. 
And she says she has 30 of them. And I go, that is amazing. That's so amazing. Here's the challenge. There are 3,000 young kids in our community that need help. So now I only have to worry about the 2,970 that remain. But every week I hear of another program working with you. And every week I hear of somebody being excited about what they're doing. We need to simply begin to collect all of these opportunities. We simply need to offer alternatives to young men on the corner and say, here is another option. I was blessed with being presented with tons of options as I grew up. And fortunately, my father gently guided me to make the right decisions, whether I agreed with it or not. <laughs> it was an effective strategy. <laughs> we need to help present alternatives, whether it's golf, whether it's there's a lifeguard shortage, a lifeguard shortage. The YMCA teaches swimming. The, there are pools in the Fifth Ward, and one of the best beaches in the city is right there. And we are not training young men and women to be lifeguards or to be artists or to be entrepreneurs or to be musicians. I think we are missing that alternative training for young people. And that goes right into the other one of education. Education is certainly beyond the classroom. It's experiential. When I was a dean at the University of Chicago, I helped medical students run clinics in the community and law students do pro bono work. I advised 86 different student organizations, everything from the American Red Cross and Habitat for Humanity to Woodlawn and Wadsworth after school, helping students get beyond the classroom. So I'm not negating the quality of education and its excellence. I'm saying there are a bunch of young people who need additional kind of training, alternative kind of training. Mm-hmm. That's something that I I'm so happy to hear from a number of people who are running for public office right now, because that whole idea of different kinds of training, different kind of exposures to, you know, either a, a weird sport like golf that's going to get you a scholarship mm-hmm. or maybe even bringing back. Uh, trade schools or, you know, not everybody wants to go to college. Not everybody needs to go to college. But, you know, for a long time, we sort of have gotten away from from people being plumbers. You know, plumbers make a darn good living, you know, especially if they're union plumbers, for God's sake. And I think that there are so many kinds of opportunities that have been overlooked for so long. And we've just lost that. I don't understand why CVS High School is not busting at the seams, why we're not investing in training a whole generation of alternative skill sets. So I would champion that. I would champion quality education. We have programs that can determine the best singer, the best dancer. I haven't seen a program that said, let's find the best second grade in the country. I would love to see somebody fund, let's find the best teacher in the country and pay them what we pay our athletes and our stars. That would be marvelous and revolutionary and a change of faith. Absolutely, it would. We need to take a a break. I'm speaking with Wallace Good, who's a candidate for the aldermanic seat that is going to be voted on February 28th for the 5th Ward. We're going to be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Hyde Park resident Wallace Good joins us now. He is going to be on your ballot if you live in Chicago's Fifth Ward. 
Leslie Hairston, the longtime alder there, is not running for that seat again. There are going to be a number of candidates to choose from. We are going to try to talk to as many of them as we can. Um, and we've been talking to Wallace Good about some of the programs he believes in, some of the things that he wants to accomplish as a member of the Chicago City Council. Wallace, would you say that there is one particular area or issue that, above all others, you are particularly passionate about? Um, Joan, I think that's a good question, and it's the question that I'm often asked, and I respond, no. I think we have to simultaneously address all of the major issues, whether it's incrementally or in huge steps, simultaneously. I think like water, if we address the issue of education and not deal with the guns or not deal with access to health care, we're missing the boat. If we deal with access and not deal with education. So I say we need to deal with six areas simultaneously. One of the best things that I saw happen yesterday was a panel of all 12 candidates. And I see there, when I become alderman, they are the guys that I'm going to reach out to because they have some great ideas in education in economics, in environment. They are really good about working with alternatives for youth, health, education, and streets. That's a great team, but we have to do it simultaneously, not one at a time. Um, I appreciate that your answer is no. I mean, oftentimes there is, sometimes people are drawn to public office because they see a problem in an area they're an expert on and they want to fix it. But I think that globalists, people who are want to look at all the issues equally, are as important to have in your legislative body and maybe even more important than the specialists. One of the issues that always comes up over and over again is health care, quality health care, access to quality health care. What would you do on those issues? So, Immediately when it comes to health care, first of all, I believe we can recruit local 24-hour clinics into our community. I think there is an economic opportunity if they redefine the bottom line a little bit more. I think mental health care facilities and pharmaceutical facilities need to be more strategic and regionally located as opposed to a long distance away in another community someplace else. And then lastly, I think we really need to think about increasing in-home insurance coverage. The medical teams that I know say, well, we can't do it because the insurance coverage doesn't cover us coming to this person's house. Well, why doesn't it? Why haven't we fixed that? So I think there are many ways to bring health care, quality health care, closer to the residents and the members of this community without a whole major financial infusion. Yeah. You know, I was really shocked to find out that the reason pre-pandemic, the reason that we didn't have more doctors doing telehealth was because those appointments were not either reimbursed at all by insurance or were not reimbursed at anywhere near the same rate as seeing people in person. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, how did that slip through? You know, and with the pandemic, when we had to do it, and even now, I mean, there was... um. Some of the some of the rules that made insurance companies pay for telehealth, some of those were set to sunset. They were set to go away, and there was a a big move to keep those on the books. It's just crazy. 
Joan, that's sort of the balance that I think I also bring to the table. There are a lot of secondary and subtle policies that never make it to the light of day that influence the impact that people have. Working for the city, I certainly was able to peel and dig down deep enough to understand sometimes why community residents did not receive quality service. And let me never say that it was, in fact, that frontline worker occasionally or the staff. Government is overextended and has made promises it can't keep. I reiterate that. It's overextended and has made promises it can't keep. You know, we understand that what we pay in our taxes gives us a Chicago public school system, and many of us understand that you pay for tutors to augment what your kid gets in the public school. We understand that the police department is at this level, but we pay more for extra security, like uh, cameras, buzzers, and guards. So why don't we understand that our tax dollars no longer meet the need of our government? We need to invest differently. The government is overextended and has made promises it can't keep. Let's uh, switch topics a little bit. Uh, climate environmental issues what would you like <laughs> okay i hit a nerve there <laughs> first of all thank you i mean i am absolutely enjoying this because this is the conversation i have with people every single day in restaurants in the bars on the corners usually it's a lot colder outside right now so i love that i'm doing this from the comfort of my home office. So, so that guy hanging out on the corner, guys, I want you to know is Wallace Good. He's running for older person. Don't be afraid of him when he starts to talk to you. <laughs> you are so, so right. Um, in terms of climate change, after having worked in the Solomon Islands and dealing living on an island and living in Central Africa where the Sahel was pushing further and further south, I got to see frontline firsthand environmental impact long before they made the news and the impact it was having on farmers and fisheries in those places. I think the reality is climate change and, again, living on Lake Michigan, I've asked several people, now, will fresh water be impacted? Because 20% of the world's fresh water is right here in the Great Lakes. And they keep saying, no, Wallace, it's coastal. It's not in land. So in that sense, I say we need to recognize that it's happening. It's happening all over the world, and anyone who's ever traveled will see how it has changed, and the people locally will tell you how it has changed. Because we live on the fourth floor, we're not worried about flooding. We just saw a program in California where a woman lived 80 yards from the beach, and her house just fell in the ocean. Ugh. I don't think we're – you know, that was just amazing as we read, followed that story. What are we going to do for our climate change in our winters in Boston? And imagine living in Buffalo and how many people died from this last snowstorm in Buffalo. Yeah. They died because they got stuck in their cars or in their homes. That should tell anybody that climate change is real. We need to be smart enough and prepare ourselves the right way. I'll say one last thing on that. I lived in Vermont. I went to graduate school in Vermont. I thought I was just going to another part of the United States. Trust me, it was a whole different country. Anyway, the point <laughs> of it is Vermont just embraced winter. We went out every day and did something exciting in the winter and the snow, as opposed to we hunkered down and endure winter. That was such a refreshing learning experience for me. They embraced winter. 
And that tells me again, when I travel around the world and I spend time with people, how they approach life has been immensely invaluable to me. We just have about a minute left, Wallace. So for those people who are listening, who are going to see your name on the ballot this February 28th, as you run to be the next alder for the fifth ward, what's a final message that you want to leave people with? I think this is a real critical time for the fifth ward, not only because of an alder person vacating a position that she's had for so many years, you know, a huge vacuum will occur. And therefore, we need somebody who can manage that vacuum. And I jokingly say, as a kid who grew up on the South Side, I speak South Side. As someone who works for City Hall, I speak government. I speak business. I speak the arts. And I speak the University of Chicago, having been a dean there. That is critical to hold us apart, hold us together for this next four or eight years so that we can benefit. Bottom line is, I'm committed to serving this community. My family has always lived in this community. And Joan, as I just said, and I suddenly realized my whole life has been community service. Why not? <laughs> yeah, you, it, really, it really has been. Uh, real quick, do you have a website where people can get more information about you? Thank you for saying that because I was supposed to say then I forgot. <laughs> Wallacegood.com. W-A-L-L-A-C-E. G-O-O-D-E dot com. And they'll tell you all about my history, the past, present, and what I have planned for the fifth year. Well, Mr. Good, it has been a delight to talk to you, and I look forward to future conversations. Good luck with your campaign. Joan, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care. You too. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am so happy to be joined by good friend, radio fill-in host at WCPT and activist, Marge Halperin, who reached out to me this morning and said, hey, did you know this was going on? And I was like, no, Marge, you need to come on the radio and talk about it. So here we are with Marge Halperin. Just that kind of quick turnaround is how we bring you the very latest. Marge, thanks so much for reaching out. And I uh, I thought, you know, the the work and the, co- the community group you're working with, I thought that was really important to talk about. So you have the floor. Go ahead. Tell us all about it. Oh, thank you. I am talking to you as part of a relatively new organization called One Community Near South. Uh, I live in the South Loop now, as I have mentioned on the show a few times. And this general region is underrepresented and really splintered and not seen so much as a residential area. But many of us live here. Many more are coming every day, and they keep building more high-rises. We have two state reps, two state senators, a uh, congressional district that stretches from the Gold Coast out to Oak Park. So, and now with the new aldermanic map, we have five aldermen representing this general area from Printers Row to Chinatown, from the river to the lakefront. And so when you have issues that are concerned to the residents, you have to make a whole lot of calls and a whole lot of noise to be heard. So uh, we are active right now on this issue of the proposed dome for Soldier Field. 
And that's the thing I um, shook your tree about, uh, as you noted, this morning. So I I don't know uh, who has seen this story, but there's a new glitzy video uh, showing the dome proposal that the mayor unveiled this summer to a ho-hum and a yawn. And the reason it's getting such a ho-hum is because it doesn't meet the needs of the Bears. They, first of all, want to own the stadium, and that isn't going to happen here. Um, they want a larger stadium, and this proposal adds only a few thousand seats. Um, doesn't get them to the 70,000 mark that they need to host the Super Bowl. Um, and it doesn't give them revenue from an entertainment district. But it does have an entertainment district, which would be built as part of the mega development called One Central. This is uh, the brainchild, or actually uh, the fantasy, I hope, of a man named Bob Dunn, who runs Landmark Development. He owns the air rights over the railroad tracks across uh, Lakeshore Drive from Soldier Field that stretches down to McCormick Place. He's invested in these air rights, and they're worthless if he can't build the infrastructure that would give him a platform to build high-rises and the entertainment center that he has proposed in the Soldier Field package. So this is the development where the railroad tracks that are already there would stay there. We would just um, cover them over and go up from there, correct? Yes, cover them over with a seven-story platform that would be paid for by Illinois taxpayers. It was approved in the dead of night session at the end of the term, the way things like that are done in Springfield in 2019, just before COVID hit and didn't get a lot of attention. Uh, nonetheless, it's a $6.5 billion with a B of state tax money. It needs final approval from Governor Pritzker, and he has uh, or is in the process of commissioning a feasibility study, which I you know, he hasn't said flatly, but it would seem he's hoping that gets them off the hook from writing the check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we're in billions of dollars uh-huh. already. Yeah, a feasibility study that hopefully he can point to. Um, if he doesn't want the development to go forward, he can say, oh, the feasibility study, you know, looks looks looking bad. I I can't in good conscience go forward with this. And it kind of gives him clean hands. It, it could. Well, and I expect it could because, you know, there's been no um, environmental impact. Um, the only uh, study and, and right there on the lakefront that is considerably um, it's a matter of concern to build that kind of development right in the lakefront. And um, there, the economic impact study is only one that's been financed by landmark development. So, of course, that makes it look like. Um, you know, it'll be a slam dunk. Nonetheless, he wants part of the development is nine skyscrapers of indeterminate height. Um, we can't. And, and, you know, he first proposed this a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. It, it was I was skeptical about it then. But now who thinks you're going to fill skyscrapers on the lakefront when we can't even fill the ones downtown? They're rapidly emptying. and There's a crisis. Uh, happening with empty office space downtown uh, as we continue to reorganize work life after COVID. So building that number of skyscrapers um, just is wacky. So so then, Joan, we think, what, why is the mayor uh, this close, as Michael Sneed would say, to Landmark? What, what is, what's the deal between City Hall and Landmark? We really don't know, but you can watch and see that 
she's desperate to save the Bears. I'm not sure Chicagoans are desperate to keep the Bears here, but she is. And he's offered this dome proposal pro bono as a pro bono City Hall consultant. And every time Lightfoot talks about the dome, she's promoting the One Central Project. So yeah, kind of back and forth I, happening, and maybe, maybe it's- I think I agree with you. I think that the Bears, I think that ship has sailed, no matter what she agrees to do, because for the simple reason that when you really look at the numbers, yes, it's going to take many years, and um, the people out in Arlington Heights could still potentially gum up the works if uh, if they don't cooperate. But when you look at what the Bears stand to gain over the next decade, the amount of money that they can make if they have their own property, if they have their own parking, if they have their own little entertainment center out there, I mean, the money that they can make potentially out there so dwarfs any amount of money that they can make staying where they are. If I were, if I were on the board of directors for the Bears, I would say this is a no-brainer. Uh, even if there is some short-term pain, you've got to take it. This just long-term, the financials make so much sense. There's so much money to be made with uh, with this new land and new parking and a new bigger and better stadium. It just, I can't see that there's any scenario where they go, oh, yeah, well, we'll sign up for another 30 years downtown. We don't need, we don't need to make all that, those extra billions of dollars. <laughs> it doesn't seem very likely. And, I, no. you know, I, I keep thinking the more Lightfoot presses with deals that don't meet the Bears' demands or needs, the more she creates the legacy for herself as the mayor who lost the Bears. Where if she had said up front, this is totally unreasonable. If they don't appreciate the value of this landmark stadium in the history of the city of Chicago, let fans be a judge as to whether the Bears could succeed in Arlington Heights or not. And we're going to pursue bigger and better projects for the uh, stadium in the region, you know, and focus on that. I, I but that isn't what she did. She's insisting the Bears need to stay, and they're doing everything they can to keep them. So she's created a proposition uh, of failure for herself. On the other hand, what's her uh, love of One Central about? Maybe that's a legacy project she thinks will redeem her having lost the Bears because the Dome Stadium could be used for other things. Uh, and I, I, if you go back to last summer... And the casino finalists, how is it that one central was one of the three finalists for the casino when the number one criteria was to be up and running as quickly as possible? <laughs> yeah. One central is was tracks. It's tracks, nothing but tracks. Uh-huh. So there was no way it was ever going to be chosen, but it would appear to me that she put it in the finalist list as a favor to help add credibility to the project. Therefore, in return, she got the pro bono consultation on the dome. And now what? Now what is she going to do for them? There's some back and forth between them 
Well, you know, Marge, Bob Dunn has said that this project, this one central that would build a cover over the railroad tracks and would create on the lower levels this amazing transit hub where the CTA and the Metro and the buses, it's going to be like one stop shopping. And then people are going to be living above and they're going to be having like little restaurants and things. And it's going to be amazing. His argument was. We have forgotten how to dream big and to make big, bold plans. Marge, you're you're raining on the parade of the big, bold plan. Come on. Where's your vision for the future? (laughs) I have another little shower to rain down on what you just said, because let's talk about the transit hub for a minute. Dunn calls it a civic build. I call it a civic bilk because... It's a transportation center that none of those transportation agencies asked for or had in their long-range plans. And, in fact, Metra and Amtrak are already over there. CTA is not. And did you realize that his $6.5 billion plan does not include a CTA spur to take the trains over from the Roosevelt Station, which is walking distance, I walk it all the time, over to the Soldier Field area? So that's an expense CTA and local taxpayers are going to have to bear. What, are we going to have another TIF for CTA for that? No one's talking about how you can get CTA over to that transit center. It's not included. There's a whole thing is a joke. The only one dreaming big is Bob Dunn dreaming a big profit at our expense. It's, it's obscene and shameful. Oh, we need to take a break. When we come back, I'm speaking with Marge Halperin. I want to talk about um, more about one community near South, um, which is the uh, local group that is uh, in the news today, kind of pushing back against the big dream of Bob Dunn. We'll be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. WCPT fill-in host Marge Halperin is also a community activist. One of the groups that she is working with is called One Community Near South. And they are talking about this big one central development planned for the area. But let's back up a little bit more, Marge. I'd like to hear more about this group, who's in it, how it came together. Yeah, So um, we are a fledgling group, for sure, about a year uh, in the making. Uh, I and the neighbors from around the region have been talking about various issues as they come up. Uh, And we've identified this region near south as being from Printer's Row to Chinatown and from the river to the lake. And it's a highly residential area and increasingly residential, and yet we have no unified unified voice. There are organizations, community groups, of course, in Chinatown. We even include some issues for Pilsen. We have some members and folks from Pilsen. Um, and so there are some highly local neighborhood groups. We have a wonderful Indivisible chapter, Indivisible Downtown, that is based in Printer's Row and covers this region in a wonderful way. Um, but... But for this broader region, we have two state reps, two state senators. With the new aldermanic districts, we have five aldermen. So when you want to raise your voice and speak up to your elected officials, you're going to make a whole lot of calls, and you have to have a whole lot of people to make impact. You have to have people in every one of those districts 
in order to get some unified response from our elected officials. The new map uh, puts my four, the four block area that I live in into the mm-hmm. downtown district. Uh, so we're in 34th Ward, the new downtown high rise ward, just our eight blocks in the middle of the South Loop. So we're not connected to anybody here anymore. And I, and I just this idea of splitting up the residential area. I know that was done in Englewood and, and hell was raised to some uh, benefit, not a lot, but there are certain communities that are just chopped up by elected officials. And it's so disrespectful to the community and it, it's an attempt to mute our voice. Uh, so we're joining together so that we can have a stronger voice in the near South region on issues. You know, everybody's got issues about potholes and stop signs. Who do you call? Well, mm-hmm. what is this across the street from me? That's not my alderman. I live here, but, uh, it, I, you know, it's crazy how chopped up we are. So we, we began talking with neighbors from all of these communities during um, around the South Loop High School issue, the Chinatown High School issue, um, the One Central, the 78, the casino bids really brought us together because two of the three casinos were in our broader region, uh, two of the three finalists. So um, we realized we have a lot in common. We live in the same community, whether elected officials recognize it that way or not. And uh, so we are working together to stand up for the interests and rights of the people who live here. I have a question, and perhaps mm-hmm. yeah, perhaps um, I'm asking you uh, to speak on behalf of people that you don't feel comfortable speaking on behalf of, but let's just say uh, we woke up tomorrow morning and Bob Dunn, who is behind this one central mega development, he announced, oh my gosh, I've recrunched the numbers and I don't need any city money. I don't need any state money. I don't need any federal money. I can do this all by myself and with other private investors. How do you think that one community near South would feel about one central under those circumstances? I think we still would want input in some of the planning and decisions uh, that are made. I know that um, there are considerations about the kind of glass that's chosen um, that are environmental concerns. And there's other things that were brought up during the casino hearings that local residents think about that developers don't. And we do have a tradition here of having input, some input, sometimes more input than others, um, but it can make a difference. Lincoln Yards uh, wasn't stopped, but the hideout was protected and some concessions were made and buildings were lowered from their original uh, story structure because of the input of community. And so we would want that same kind of input. But otherwise, um, you know, I, I taking the tax dollars out of the equation is our number one demand. After that, we expect that we would be treated like any other community when a development is coming in and some kind of public process would happen overseen by elected officials, all of them. <laughs> we have that same issue with having too many of them. But that's what we would expect. We would expect to have a voice. But we're not opposed to Don developing using the land, the air rights that he owns. We're just opposed to being his insurance policy that underwrites the project with taxpayer dollars. 
You've talked about how this area is kind of divided up and is represented by a lot of different alders, a lot of different uh, state legislatures, uh, legislators. Uh, are there any either state officials or local officials who you and um, and the group have been working with and um, are sort of helping you champion your cause? Yes. Um, most notably, Cam Buckner. Really? Uh, he has been he's been on the front lines of this and he has alerted us to a lot of different issues related. In fact, uh, a year ago this fall, there was an effort. This gets complicated, but I mentioned the feasibility study that the governor's commissioned. The the approval of the six point five billion dollars rests on a final okay from the governor. So he's got this feasibility study so he can make a clear analysis and rest on facts. Uh if and when he's able to stop the funding, which is what I think he's doing. But at any rate, that's troubling. One Central doesn't like that because they can see the writing on the wall the way you and I can, and they don't want the governor to be able to stop it. So uh, in October of 21, there was a late-night bill, literally a midnight bill, promoted by um, Don Harmon and allies of his that would have transferred the final approval out of the governor's hands into the Illinois Finance Authority. Now, the Illinois Finance Authority is not a uh, is a transactional agency. They're a pass through for federal financing. That is, um, certain projects are targeted for lower financing costs. You can save a couple basis points or percentages on your financing if you're healthcare, public education. There's different categories that federal funding will benefit you for. That's what IFA does. They're not a transportation expert. They wouldn't have given any feasibility study. They'd have just helped lower. Uh, found ways to lower the financing costs and passed it through. Now, why did they pick the Illinois Finance Authority? Maybe because it's run by a longtime political ally of Don Harmon. No, we wouldn't do that. There wouldn't be that kind of favoritism in Illinois. Come on, Marge. That's not how we do business. Oh, forgive me, <sighs> Cynic Joan. But I, you know, the, so a lot of people I talk to about this project, a lot of media. So I spent yesterday, you know, talking to a lot of different media folks um, and today with you and others. And people say, oh, come on, it's never going to happen. It's not even worth fighting. One reporter told me, why are you even fighting this? It can't happen. Well, here in Illinois, the ridiculous remains ridiculous until it becomes reality. Mm-hmm. It's just those kinds of ploys that pals do for their friends. Why is one central friends with, and who are they friends with beyond Lori Lightfoot and Don Harmon? I don't know, but I'm not going to look away from this project until it stopped. Yeah. Well, and you know, that's exactly, you know, when, when one of these projects is planned for your backyard, wherever, who, wherever your backyard happens to be, you know, that's, that's when you sit up and take notice. I mean, the people who lived around uh, the Lincoln Yards, uh, you know, maybe they weren't involved in the beginning. But, man, when that thing started getting off the ground, they were like, wait a minute. Well, excuse me. Hello. That's right. You know, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And I do want to reiterate, you asked a very good question a few minutes ago about what if he can pay for it himself. And I want to say again, go for it. Work with the community the way a good developer would do. Give us input, but we wouldn't stop it. It's not. Well, it's not a NIMBY thing. Um, this is a taxpayer issue. Exactly. We don't want this. 
And everybody in the state of Illinois should be paying attention because they're all going to pay for it. And I just don't think at this point in time, dream big, you know, hey, I'm I'm right there. I'm right there for you. But if you want to dream big and you want me to pay six point five billion dollars to make that happen, uh, I might ask you to dream a little smaller. <laughs> make some little plans. Yes, make little plans. Make all little plans. If you're spending my money, they better be little plans or big return. And this yeah. is not demonstrating the investment value for taxpayers. It's only an investment value for Landmark and Bob Dunn. And I'm not interested in paying for that. So where does the project stand? Are there any community meetings scheduled? Any votes of any kind scheduled? Well, there are no votes scheduled uh, unless something else sneaks in. And we do thank Cam Buckner for being on the lookout. He found that bill that uh, the Harmon folks put in late at night and he exposed it, got media coverage quickly for it. Greg Hines put the story out in a blog post and on social media. And by dawn, it was over and they'd withdrawn it because they were exposed and it would not stand the light of day. So at the moment, there's nothing happening, but they can, these things can crop up at any time. And so we have to be vigilant and um, people can find us at one community SL standing for South loop. Although we cover the broader near South area and join our work, fill out the form there, find out more about us, join us and uh, get on our list. We do have, meetings in the neighborhood and uh, we'd be happy to have more support give uh, give the web address again one community sl.com one community this is in south loop sl.com um i have a feeling that this organization is going to be a uh, growing in in the near future um now let's just we we don't have a lot of time left but what if what if we separated out the dome? Because I think the bears are going to leave and we have to figure out how to use Soldier Field. And it, it always when they when they built the, you know, the toilet bowl addition to Soldier Field, I thought it was crazy at that time not to put a dome on it. Because with our weather, if you really want to make this a year round venue, you know, I mean, you know, Fleetwood Mac is not going to be performing in Soldier Field in January. That just isn't going to happen. Lady Gaga, no, not going to happen. So if we split that out um, and we're able to just dome over Soldier Field so that it is simply a more useful venue, you know, how does one community near South feel about that? Uh, again, uh, you know, who would pay for that? Exactly. I the deal. Follow the money. I think the I think the deal with Lightfoot and Landmark, this is pure speculation, but I'll speculate, even though that's a bad practice in most cases. But it would appear that there's the $6.5 billion for the uh, transit hub, which has been capped at 3.8. What is Dunn going to do with the rest of the money? Maybe he's offered it to Lightfoot to pay for the dome. I don't know. Interesting. Flush funding there. Um, so maybe that's the deal. So without one central, can Lightfoot find the money to pay for the dome? I I don't know. Um, but, you know, uh, Wrigley Field has concerts in the summer that are very successful. 
Photographism yeah. in the summer that are very successful. There are some other ways to make money there, but um, the interviews that the city uh, planning commissioner uh, Maurice Cox has given have been committed to the dome um, as part of uh, using the venue, even without the bears. And the mayor had the museum campus uh, study committee over the summer. Um, which came out, no surprise, supporting a dome on Soldier Field. They were told, by the way, that they couldn't talk about One Central. So here they're commissioned to look at the future of the region, but they're not allowed to talk about One Central. Wow. I found that. Marge, I'm expecting you to stay on top of this. Hopefully the end of this week or next week, we're going to have Cam Buckner back. I will talk to Cam about it as well. Uh, But let me know. Reach out anytime there's a development, okay? Will do. Thanks for the opportunity to share this with you and the listeners of WCPT. Thank you. Uh, The organization is One Community Near South. Marge Halperin, you hear her filling in on WCPT. She's also obviously a community activist. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I am pleased to be joined by DePaul journalist in residence, Chris Beery, former longtime network newsman. And Chris, I have to say, welcome. Um, Happy New Year. I am so glad to talk to you today. Happy New Year, Joan. You know, we're just another uh, ho-hum weekend in these United (laughs) States, right? I was going to ask you, how late (laughs) did you stay up Friday night? Yeah, you know, I I hate to admit that <laughs> I was up on uh, Friday night flipping around the the cable channels. That's uh, that's my social life on a Friday. But it was just it. it, it oh, was just, oh, excuse it was me. Mid- I was sitting on the couch by myself <laughs> till after one in the morning. I mean, talk yeah. about sad. <laughs> I, I, I was the same way. I mean, it, it was just it, it was just you know, if you're a political junkie. I mean, it was just must-see TV. I mean, absolute chaos, you know, Republicans ready to, you know, physically pummel each other in the aisles. It's just, it's crazy. And, you know, when I was looking at that whole uh, physical altercation, I just couldn't help but go back to, like, the high school history, you know, books when, um, you know, back in the 1850s when Preston Brooks had a cane and he caned Senator uh, Charles Sumner, you know, and beat him, you know, almost to death. And I thought, oh, my God, if, uh, you know, this guy had a cane, Matt Gates might have gone out of there, you know, in, a, in an ambulance. It was just it was it was wild. I mean. You know, 15 votes to elect a leader of the party over five days. I mean, it was it was absolute chaos. I was trying to think. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember when in Chicago City Council, when Dick Mel got up on a (laughs) desk and was banging his shoe that he had just taken off banging his shoe, trying to get attention because city council was in such disarray. But, Chris, I don't remember ever seeing this kind of disarray in Congress. Do you remember anything that was ever this chaotic? Now, the closest thing that I can remember is covering the days after uh, Gingrich 
was Speaker of the House, and he had to uh, resign because of the affair that he had, you know, and then the successor, Bob Livingston, had to resign <laughs> because he also had had, had an affair. Um, and that was crazy, but it wasn't a leadership vote. And what I found really, I mean, downright amusing was the attempt to spin this on the Sunday shows yesterday as some kind of shining example of democracy in action. You know, that the Republicans here oh, were yeah. exercising oh, yeah. true democracy. And that is so rich, <laughs> considering well, you know, how many interviews Republicans voted yeah. against, you know, the 2020 election. So it, it was it, like they were all working from the same script. Well, you know, democracy is messy, but we wouldn't have it any other way. I think I heard that exact sentence at least three times from three different Republicans. Well, you know, it's it's a messy process, but this is, you know, this is how it works. And this is it means everything's great. Exactly. I mean, democracy is when you and I and your listeners go to the ballot box. Um, democracy is not what happens when a party is trying to caucus for a leader. I mean, Nancy Pelosi had the exact same 10 vote margin uh, as uh, McCarthy, uh, and yet she was able you know, to be elected speaker without any of the uh, of this drama. And the reality is not that it was democracy in action, as any Republican who's not in the chaos caucus will admit. The reality is a handful you know, between 10 and 20 right-wing radicals extorted McCarthy, who gave in to their demands so he could get the job. And, I mean, don't take my word for it. That's what Republicans like Dan Crenshaw, who is no, you know, he's no flaming liberal, you know, the Republican of Texas, called them terrorists. And that's what Republicans, you know, so-called moderate Republicans, which may not even be true anymore, but... Even fellow Republicans are calling them legislative terrorists. I, excuse me, I have to say, um, Kevin McCarthy's desire to be speaker seems almost irrational in its intensity. And because of that, because this was a man that was really, I mean, he was ride or die on this. I was kind of surprised that he didn't try to make a deal of some kind with Hakeem Jeffries. Did you hear anything? I mean, Jim Clyburn, like a week ago, said, hey, you know, if he wants to be speaker, he ought to be picking up the phone and talking to Hakeem. Um, did you hear any rumors? I mean, did, no, did it happen would, and Hakeem shut it down? Or Yeah, I, didn't, I mean, the, I, only, the only thing I read as this was all unfolding is that there were some folks hoping that maybe there would be a deal for a different candidate uh, from one of the districts that Biden won. Uh, And that's the only way that, you know, some Democrats could be moved over. But otherwise, I think that the the leadership of the party was, okay. this is McCarthy's mess. Let him lie in it. And I don't think that there was any move to try to help him. And I don't think that there was a we don't know, but I don't think there was any ever kind of a formal effort to nominate somebody else who could be acceptable to the Democrats. So, you know, this is the Republican um, caucus. This is who they you know, after 15 votes, this is who they have. And so it's going to be just incredibly um, interesting to watch this over the next two years, if McCarthy makes it two years. 
<laughs> and and frankly, that's pretty seriously in doubt. I've heard even Republicans predicting that this may be one of the shortest speakerships in history. But the weird thing is, these same people who are saying this, it almost they almost make it sound like McCarthy doesn't care. He's got that credential behind his name. He's going to get the portrait. You know, regardless of what happens from here on in, he's a success, darn it. Well, he wanted this, you know, and he wanted it once before, and there was a lot of op, and he didn't get it, obviously. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it, and I go, going back to your earlier point about um, there was just something so uh, frantic about his desire to get this position no matter what, and all of the humiliation that he suffered. I mean, for this to go 15 rounds and the pictures of him that night on C-SPAN, you know, going up the aisle pleading with uh, Matt Gates of, of Florida. I mean, any any normal leader would be humiliated by by that. You know, a, a, a senior member of, of the party going to negotiate in public with, you know, one of the most uh, fringe outlying figures in the Republican Party was just a, a humiliating spectacle. There's no other way to accurately put that. Last Wednesday, I uh, was speaking to Jan Schakowsky, and she was like, well, you know what Kevin McCarthy should do? He should pick up the phone and call Nancy Pelosi and say, Nancy, how do I do this? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I thought there was kind of a, a interesting sort of, uh, I guess this is inside baseball power move, but you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi apparently did not want the picture, the television picture, of her handing over the gavel to McCarthy. So um, they agreed to have, you know, Jeffries, who was not the speaker, but the leader of the Democratic uh, caucus in, in the House, hand over the uh, the gavel just so McCarthy couldn't get that satisfaction of, you know, the national TV and the Twitter feeds of, of Nancy Pelosi handing over the gavel to, to Kevin McCarthy. I did not read or hear about that. Um, she felt that, um, what, that, that it would be the kind of thing that he would make hay with? Absolutely, that he would exploit that picture and never forget that McCarthy at once said, one time said um, that if he got the speaker, he would have a or got the gavel, the speaker's gavel, he would have to refrain himself from hitting Nancy Pelosi. Oh, my God, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. So I think that was another reason, uh, you know, Pelosi is probably three steps ahead of him on the uh, on the chessboard there. Wow. she, She maneuvered so that 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 picture would not ever exist. Unless she could have somehow convinced him to put his hand down on the podium and she could have gaveled his hand. That would have been that would have been a, a meme on Twitter for the rest of our lives. Uh, Chris, we should take a break. Sure. There's still so much to talk about here. I'm speaking with DePaul journalist and residence, former longtime network newsman Chris Beery. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by DePaul journalist in residence, former network newsman Chris Bury. And I can't, we can't move off of this. I just, we can't move off of this, uh, Kevin McCarthy one vote victory becoming Speaker of the House after, after, I don't know, it was after, it was like one in the morning. What was the final tally? 13 votes, 15 votes, 18 votes? I don't know. I lost track. Yeah, I was I numb. It was 216 uh, for McCarthy and then six voted present. 
And so that. Uh, but how know, many? How, what what number of votes were we in? Was it on the thirteenth? Oh, fifteenth. Yeah, the fifteenth. Yeah. Yeah. He, he I lost the, the will to live ballot. after thirteen. Yeah, and, and it took five days. I mean, just just uh, an incredible uh, spectacle. And we're talking about the great scenes on C-SPAN, and we only got those because the speaker normally controls the C-SPAN feed, and since there was no speaker, the producers got to control the cameras. And so that's the reason we got those phenomenal shots, the incredible, you know, the video, the, video, the confrontation uh-huh. with... Uh, Mike Rogers and Matt Gates. We only got that because there was no speaker to control the feed. Otherwise, it would have been the boring, you know, wide shot, tight shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we saw incredible drama um, unfold. And that's one of the reasons why it was actually fun to stay up and watch on, uh, on Friday. Oh, was, yeah. Friday night. Yeah, yeah. Who was whispering with whom and who was stomping around and. You know, and uh, and and whether was Kevin McCarthy smiling? Was he serious? Did he look sad or depressed? <laughs> um, now tonight, uh, this new Congress is going to be voting on the rules under which they will be operating. And by all accounts, Kevin McCarthy has agreed to allow any Congressperson to stand up and declare a a request for a no-confidence vote to take Kevin McCarthy's speakership to task. Now, the Democrats who talked about this in, you know, toward the end of last week were saying, you know, whether or not they're really serious about it, what that will mean is whatever Congress is doing comes to a halt and they have to do this before they can get back on track. And just that it's the suspicion was by some Democrats was that the more radical Republicans would simply use this as a disruption um, a, a, and a way to disrupt and, you know, make their loud voices heard again. But I thought it was interesting this morning on CNN. And I'm sorry, I can't remember his, his name. One of the anchors was talking to a Republican congressman who had said to CNN previously when Kevin McCarthy was considering giving this no-confidence power to five, it would have taken five Congress people. And she was like, when it was five, you came out and said that that was horrible, it was a bad idea. She goes, now, by all accounts, it's one. And the Republican said, she looked at her and said, five, one, it's the same. What's the difference? Because if you can, if you can get one, you can probably get five. So it's really the same thing. It's going to be amazing. I mean, so it's going to take, if this rules package is passed, um, it's going to take a one representative for a motion to what's called vacate the chair. And so just imagine some of the clowns that are in there. You know, you can imagine a Matt Gates, uh, a Lauren Boebert, a Chip Roy. You, I mean, you can imagine. Uh-huh. Well, Go, you know, Roy, it turned out Roy, you know, eventually voted for McCarthy. But, you know, what about a Boebert? You can you can just uh-huh. imagine, especially the members who really are more interested in their personal Twitter brand or their social media brand and raising money. They're far more concerned with that than they are in solving problems and, and governing. So that alone, you know, that, that that could be a disaster, one of many potential disasters um, over the next couple of years. And one of the things about this rules package is some of it is public, um, and 
but a lot of it we don't know. And the Republicans have been saying all day, you know, on, on cable TV that they don't know what deals were made. And they may never know. And some of these deals, like we don't exactly know what Matt Gates got in return for his vote of present so that McCarthy could get over the top and, and win the speakership. We don't know. But what we do know is kind of scary because, you know, one of the things that uh, Jim Jordan uh, pushed for is a new committee, uh, you know, and just the name of the committee is 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 just so ridiculous. It's called Weaponization of the Federal Government to be chaired by who? Jim Jordan. So can you imagine? Wait, and, and wait a minute. Weaponization of the, the federal government. Does that mean that that's what he's going to do or he's <laughs> no. creating this committee to prevent it? No, no he's the, he's inv- he's investigating, quote, the weaponization of the federal government, end quote, which, of course, could not be a more loaded. Term. What does that mean? I'm and serious. What, no, it means he's going to be going after the FBI and the DOJ and Merrick Garland. And in the rules or, or in this proposed deal, that committee would have the authority to examine, quote, ongoing criminal investigations. I mean, first of all, it's never going to go anywhere because the courts are not going to allow this. But, I mean, can you imagine that somebody like Jim Jordan could start hauling FBI agents in the middle of an ongoing investigation just to diminish it? I mean, it, 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 it would just make a mockery of the judicial system. And, you know, that doesn't even begin to get into what we're going to see with the spending bills and the debt ceiling. And Oh, those, that was the other thing I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. <clears throat> now, one of the things that I noted with um, the only time I think Hakeem Jeffries did not get all 212 Democratic votes is somebody, some guy, one of the Congress people had to leave a fly home. He was having some kind of minor surgery. And as soon as it was over, he flew back again. So he missed one vote. But the Democrats, they reminded me of Republicans, how like the Mitch McConnell Republicans, where Mitch McConnell has them all in lockstep. And it was so great to see them united. They didn't waffle. They didn't wiggle. None of them dropped out. One had to have surgery. Okay, we'll give him that. Because by all accounts, one of the things Kevin McCarthy has agreed to is that um, he is going to fight Democrats and moderates on raising the debt ceiling. And if the debt ceiling isn't raised, basically government can come to a screeching halt. And the, the, the reason that they do that is, by all accounts, they want to pressure the Democrats into cutting programs like Social Security. They want cuts in Social Security, and they think by holding up the vote on the debt ceiling and forcing government to crunch to a stop that the Democrats will cave. That, and this has happened in the past, that a, that a minority of conservatives have taken a stand like this, and Democrats have caved in the past. But I don't know. This group, they might not cave. This is the big one, Joan. This is the big one that your listeners should really pay attention to. Because come August or September... This is going to be a giant showdown. So the debt ceiling, right, um, this is to raise a cap on borrowing for bills that have already 
been paid by the government or bills that are pending. Um, and so, as you suggested, you know, the Republicans have already indicated they're going to use it to demand cuts in uh, Social Security, Medicare, and so on. The problem is that if the debt ceiling is not raised, the U.S. could default uh, on its obligations, which has never happened. It's it's a really dangerous game of chicken. And you talked about the last time, which was during the Obama presidency in 2011. That summer, um, when the Republicans threatened this, the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 2,000 points that summer. Yep. Interest rates skyrocketed. So, you know, this is something that is not to be taken lightly. I mean, the Biden administration has made several statements in the last you know, two days saying they're not going to back down. But what is concerning to me is that even so-called moderates, such as former uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, have basically encouraged Republicans to go ahead and do this. Um, and like I said, it's a real game of chicken. And that's where I think this 10-vote majority that McCarthy has, I think that could crumble. Because you, you have these, you know, 15 or so Republicans who were elected in, in districts that Biden won. And I can see them maybe joining with the Democrats to prevent the United States defaulting on its obligations, which has never happened before. And I think I, I agree with you. I think that unless the more middle of the road Republicans find their spines somewhere along the line, I mean, this could be this could be really ugly. This could be really ugly. But here's what I don't understand. And we have to take a break. So you get a few minutes to think about this, Chris. As I was growing up. And learning about politics. I was always told that you don't mess with Social Security. That was the third rail. And any politician who went after Social Security was dooming themselves in they would never be reelected. The Republicans are very publicly going after Social Security. And I don't understand. Has no one told them that old people vote in large numbers? I'm going to get Chris Beery's take on this when we come right back. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Got to turn my mic on. I'm a broadcasting professional. Chris Beery, DePaul journalist in residence and a former network newsman. And I have been talking about what is going on in the new Congress. And um, they have made it quite public. Uh, Republicans have anyway, that they want to go after Social Security, which seems incredibly foolish to me because it is the one thing that it keeps a lot of seniors out of poverty. It is a wildly popular program. People pay into it during their working lives. It's not some kind of government charity. And it seems like of all the things Republicans could be talking about, that has to be the stupidest. Clearly, they're not worried about it. And I don't understand why, Chris. Do you? No. And I think they will start worrying about it the closer the election gets. You know, one of the big reasons that the red wave did not materialize in 2022 is because of voters 50 and older. Uh, Late in the campaign, beginning in the summer, 
when people like Rick Scott, uh, Senator Scott, and Senator Ron Johnson started uh, talking about this, talking about cutting Social Security and Medicare. Uh, when that was publicized uh, late in, in the summer and, and, f- and early fall of 2022, um, there was a fair amount of movement among voters over 50, according to a big survey that uh, the American Association of Retired Persons conducted, ARP, and they found that uh, voters over 50 comprised over more than 60% of the electorate in contested districts, and they went largely Democratic. Um, so this is a big mover. Uh, it's particularly a mover among those over 50. And breaking it down even more, if you look at that survey, women. Uh, women definitely uh, vote on this issue. Um, and if this gains volume in the Republican Congress, um, you know, it, it could absolutely be suicidal for Republicans. You know, it used to be you talked about the way we used to look at it. I mean, it used to be considered the third rail of American politics. That's why. People from both parties were so reluctant to uh, to criticize either Social Security or Medicare. So the figures that you just quoted, they are the newest figures, but those kinds of trends are figures I've seen most of my adult life that older people especially vote in large numbers and older people like Social Security. This isn't... This isn't groundbreaking. This isn't like a 180 compared to how people felt a year ago. So again, it's like, it's like Republicans are saying, hand me that gun. I need to shoot myself in the foot. Oh wait, let me shoot myself in the other foot. What possible? What is it just, are they trying to appeal to people who think, I don't know that the government spends too much money. Oh, this is what well, those old people, they don't need all the money they're getting. They don't need those cost of living raises. The heck with it. Is yeah, that the argument? All, all, yeah, we're hearing all this kind of blanket rhetoric on spending um, that's coming, especially from the chaos caucus that that uh, almost derailed McCarthy. But it's it's dangerous, not just for Social Security, but also for defense. Right. Because the the budget from last year already passed and Republicans are talking about rolling back the budget to, you know, uh, levels from two years ago. Well, what some of them didn't realize is that includes, you know, a huge uh, amount, about seventy five billion dollar increase in defense spending. And over the last couple of days, some Republicans who represent heavy defense districts like Congressman Gonzalez of uh, San Antonio are going, whoa, I didn't mean, I, I mean, you should cut all that, you know, that domestic fluff. I didn't mean you should cut military spending. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of waking up to this. So, you know, governing is complicated. And these bills, you know, that have a lot of money for defense, a lot of Republicans want that defense spending. Um, and then you have on the other, I mean, Democrats are going to go to the mattresses over Social Security and Medicare. And as you rightly pointed out, Joan, Social Security is not an entitlement. It's an insurance program. We pay premiums all of our working lives so that we have that insurance in our old age. And a huge, huge percentage of Americans rely on it for a significant portion of their retirement. So 
it's one of those things that really touches people. It's not only a popular program, but people also think it's well run because their checks arrive without fail every mm-hmm. month. And going back to the, you know, the game of showdown, guess what checks wouldn't arrive if we default, you know, in August or September and the debt ceiling isn't raised? Social security checks, veteran benefits checks, military paychecks. You know, this is real stuff that's going to affect millions of Americans, which is why the whole talk of using the debt ceiling is such, um, it's so irresponsible. It could cause so much chaos. And yet, you know, some Republicans are being almost flip about it, which is kind of frightening. And one of the other issues that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but that the American people support. We support what is going on in Ukraine. We support aid to Ukraine. We support sending military equipment to Ukraine. And the other thing that they're talking about is, you know, I don't know if she still feels this way since she kind of became quiet after she started sitting next to Kevin McCarthy. But that was a big thing with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, we're going to be we're going to be looking at all that money we send to Ukraine. You know, I'm not so sure that's something we as Republicans want to continue again, taking a stand in direct opposition to the way the majority of the public feels. Give me that gun. I need to now shoot myself in the hand because I've already shot both my feet. I don't get it. Yeah, I think we're going to see that battle in this Congress, too. I mean, there's a growing pro-Trump tiny, you know, it's still a tiny minority, but growing, uh, and including Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, you know, of, of people, uh, Lauren Boebert, who are going to directly uh, question uh, appropriations for Ukraine. Now, now that's a legitimate debate, right, where we spend our, our defense money. Um, but it's interesting uh, coming from people who are also claiming that their party is about democracy. So, yeah, we're going to have lots and lots of, of battles. It's going to be a really contentious Congress. And, you know, what's going to get done? The very first thing on their agenda, um, according to McCarthy, is to, you know, try to defund the Internal Revenue Service and roll back, you know, the money that was in the um, – you know, the the uh, infrastructure bill, uh, which is going to, you know, upgrade uh, the Internal Revenue Service uh, computers, which I guess are like somewhere in the 70s or 60s or somewhere. Oh. I mean, so and is that going to happen? No, I, it, it's not going to happen because the law, the law is already signed by Biden and um, the Senate's never going to go along with it. So there's going to be just a lot of theater. And I think for most people. It's the hard part is going to be looking at this Congress and saying, "Okay, this House, all right, what's the theater? You know, what's the garbage, and what what are they serious about? We can, you know, we can kind of laugh at the theater, but we can't laugh if they come after Social Security and Medicare and veterans benefits, and that's not funny at all." Chris Beery is the journalist in residence at DePaul University. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I am going to talk to him about Mitch McConnell. You may have seen the pictures, Mitch McConnell, Joe Biden um, on the same stage in Kentucky. I think there are some interesting things going on there. I think there is some subtext I would like to explore with Mr. Beery when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
When um, on the air, I described what was going on in the Republican Party in Congress as uh, a clown car. I actually got feedback from a listener who said I was being most unfair to clowns, particularly clowns coming out of a car because they're a very diverse group and they all get along really well. And so I will not use that analogy now. But what did you think about the contrast when you saw Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden in Kentucky uh, talking about one of the great uh, infrastructure projects that uh, the government had approved, shaking hands, you know, and acknowledging their differences, but also acknowledging that when it came to the what the people needed, that they could work together. I don't know, Chris. I think that there was a message in there for Kevin McCarthy. What do you think? Well, absolutely. And it probably was among the best uh, messaging that the Biden administration has done, an administration which has often been faulted, um, and, and, and rightly so, for not uh, being terribly consistent with messaging about what it's uh, accomplished. And here, the Democrats clearly saw you know, a wonderful opportunity to contrast uh, the, the, the infrastructure, the building of bridges uh, in Kentucky with uh, Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell, uh, along with uh, the Republican governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, the Democratic governor of uh, Kentucky, Andy Bashir, you know, they're there celebrating concrete accomplishments in a bipartisan way after a bipartisan vote on one screen, while the other screen shows the, you know, the absolute chaos of um, the House of Representatives without a speaker. So that was clearly by design. And I got to hand it to the, you know, the Biden administration, who I have, whom I have faulted for not doing a very good job on messaging. I thought that they actually nailed it that day. And, you know, I mean, Mitch McConnell agreed to be there. He knew exactly what was going on. I think he was also sending a message, too, about, look at us. We are the grown-ups in the room, folks, in case you had any doubt about it. Um, also, Chris, uh, I have to interrupt. Uh, I was looking through the Washington Post, and there's some breaking news. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is apparently in a battle with Dr. Dre. Um, you may not know this. I'm telling you, it was just posted an hour ago. Turns out that um, she posted a video of herself, like, walking around, like, looking really, I don't know, determined. And the music bed was <laughs> from a song called Still, I don't know if it's Still Dre or Still D-R-E by Dr. Dre. And apparently uh, Dr. Dre contacted Twitter and said, hey, you know what? That uh, that music is copyrighted. You have to take it down. So not only did they take down the video, but Twitter has at least temporarily locked her out of her account. So now she's going after Dre. And she, you know, she was like, I would, I would never, I would never use your words of violence against women. And put in it. long story short, we have, a, we have a real controversy that is just breaking this afternoon. Forget the vote in the Rules Committee and Congress. <laughs> Forget all that other stuff. We have a battle between Marjorie and Dre. And I think that's where we should be focused. I'm and losing my mind. That's a sad part about, you know, this new breed of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates. I mean, they're all about these social media, you know, fights and stunts. And the reason is it boils down to money, right? 
small dollar donations. And what they have discovered is that the more chaos that they can cause on social media, the more that they appear to be, you know, fighting for their constituents or their slice of a constituency, the more small dollar donations pour in. So here you have Lauren Boebert, for example, who won by what, like 550 votes in her, she almost got beat in her district in Colorado, yet she's raised tens of millions of dollars. Marjorie Taylor Greene was stripped of her committee assignments in the last Congress by Democrats and Republicans, a bipartisan vote to strip her, and she's raking in gazillions. And the same with Matt Gates. They're in safe districts, and they know that they can get oodles of attention from stuff like this, and it makes them and gets their campaign chests just overflowing with millions of dollars. And that's the real kind of sad and cynical part of what's going on. I really have trouble, especially with somebody like Matt Gates. I really, I would love to go to his district and just walk around and ask people. So Matt Gates, like you think he's the guy. He's your guy. This is this is what you want to be said and the way you want somebody to behave. What do you think those people would say to me? You know, I don't know. He's you know, he's in a pretty safe district there in the uh, in the Florida panhandle and uh, won reelection pretty easily, as did Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is in kind of a, you know, a pretty rural corner of uh, northwest Georgia. The only one of the three really that had a battle was uh, Lauren Boebert. So, you know, within their kind of right wing uh, rural districts, they you know, they seem to be doing Okay, but the one I'm interested in is um, George Santos. Oh my God, I was you know, just going to ask you about him. That was I, on my list next. <laughs> oh my God, George Santos! Did you see some of the videos? We were talking about how C-SPAN had free reign. There'd be like a group of Republicans talking, and he would like slowly approach them from behind and kind of stick his head in there, and it was like he was just creeping around. Yeah, You know, I I almost felt sorry for him. And just to remind, you know, your listeners, George Santos, this is the guy elected from uh, New York, a a district that includes parts of Queens and Long Island, who made up everything about everything in his life. He made up. He didn't go to the colleges. He said he went to. He didn't work at Goldman Sachs or Citigroup. Um, He said he was Jewish. And then he said he was Jew hyphenated ish. Um, which also is is not true. I mean, the guy is just a walking, uh, you know, bag of lies, and yet he's elected. And it's on, on the one hand, it's sad, and and as a media person, I do also think it's partly the fault of the media because here, how does someone get you know elected um, into the U.S. Congress from New York? And part of New York City without getting vetted. And apparently there was like one small Long Island newspaper, which did kind of a little story saying that his credentials didn't add up. But nobody did a deep dive on this guy until after the election when the New York Times exposed him as a fraud and a liar. I read something that didn't make any sense to me, and perhaps you know it not to be true. I read after the fact that there was Democratic opposition research on George Santos, but that for some reason the the Dem opposing him decided not to not to use it. Have you read anything about that? 
No, I, I don't. I just know. I only that. read it from one source, so I'm not sure if it was real. Yeah, I, I don't know. The Long Island story was, you know, you can sort of tell it was just a small town paper and the uh, editorial staff, which normally would uh, support a Republican for that paper, voted or decided not to endorse him because of concerns about his past and who he said he was. But that should have been a flare, right? When a small paper, you know, raises legitimate doubts, that's when, and this is the New York media market. So that's when the New York Times and the Daily News and the Post and, Chan, you know, the NBC, ABC, CBS, they should have done a little bit of, you know, of digging uh, before this guy was elected. And now, you know, unless he gets expelled, which is almost impossible because it takes two thirds, He's going to be in Congress for the next two years before voters have a chance, unless, of course, he gets, you know, indicted first, which is a real possibility. Yeah, isn't uh, he had some funky business dealings? I think it, they were in Brazil. Um, he and did. yeah, he lived in and Brazil. The country and has it, decided that they're going to uh, investigate it and possibly bring charges against him. Yeah. And the Republican district attorney um, in Long Island uh, is announcing an investigation as is the U.S. attorney, because when you file uh, to run for Congress, you have to fill out certain financial forms. And if he uh, lied or if he misrepresented himself on some of those forms, that could be a federal a federal charge. So he may not make it. You know, McCarthy may not make it as speaker for two years. Santos may not make it in that chamber for two years. You know, the editor of that Long Island newspaper, I read an interview he gave and he he really blamed a lot of the bigger media outlets. He said, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, if we had done a story like this, he said, my phone would have been ringing off the hook from other reporters and other news organizations. And he said, nobody picked it up. Nobody called me to ask about it. It was like crickets. And, you know, he said that he believes that uh, the media now just isn't as good as what would have taken place 10 or 20 years ago. And sadly, part of that is because not not to defend, you know, the media for not doing its job here. But sadly, a lot of that is just because of budget cuts. There just aren't the bodies and the researchers and the investigative reporters. Although, you know, this is the number one media market in the country. So it seems that for this race anyway, I mean, I could understand it maybe if it was out in the middle of Wyoming. But I mean, this is. Queens. This is Long mm -hmm. Island. This is a you know, highly populated area. So it seems like the major media did drop the ball on on Santos. And unfortunately his constituents, you know, are, are paying the price. And from what I've seen of the interviews, you know, overwhelmingly, at least on television, the constituents are quite upset about it. Very few uh that I've seen are are still supportive of him. Yeah, though I did see an interview with one guy who but he was part of the Republican power structure. So he had a vested interest and he was like, well, you know, he said he was sorry. So <laughs> yeah, he um, just embellished his resume. Yeah, right. exactly. And uh, speaking of, of media, I know we only have like a minute left, um, but I have noticed I watch a lot of CNN and, you know, I think one of the things Chris Licht, the new head of CNN said was, you know, we're going to make CNN more like it was in the beginning. 
Have you noticed how much more crime they're covering? You know, some a car crash that where somebody gets injured, um, a, a murder, a shooting. I mean, there was always some of that, especially when it had larger implications. But that's now part of the daily diet on CNN. That's too bad. It, it goes back to the old, you know, it, it, if it bleeds, it leads kind of mentality that, you know, we, we, we've seen in, in local news. And, and that's, that's unfortunate. I was hoping that what he meant was that they would get back to doing more reporting and less punditry, um, which I would love to see on CNN because they have the, the worldwide breadth. I mean, they were fantastic during when the Ukraine war started. And then I thought, oh, my God, this is, you know, CNN at its best reporters on the ground. What I dislike is just the endless talking heads, the pundits uh, that gets real old and real predictable, in my opinion. Yeah, but it's cheap. Um, cheap. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Um, You know, we have a mayoral election coming up, and I'd, I'd like to talk with you about some way to maybe get your students involved. I don't know if um, you have any students who are interested in radio, and maybe we can have some of them join us one of these days. That sounds good. Love to talk about that. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for me today. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow, same time, same station. Have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night.